Timothy chapter 1. We're just going to look at one verse together this morning, a verse that tells us the meaning of Christmas. And a lot of people have been asking a lot of years, what is the meaning of this holiday? What is the meaning of Christmas? If you ask Lucy from Charlie Brown, she'll tell you Christmas is just one big commercial racket. That's all that it is, right? And then if you watch the Polar Express, uh, the Polar Express will tell you that Christmas is when we realize that the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. I actually like that. That's not bad from the Polar Express. Miracle on 34th Street, they say Christmas is not just a day, it's a frame of mind. That I don't like as much. That's a little too Joel Osteen for me, you know what I mean? Like, not feeling that one quite as much. Dr. Seuss taught us that Christmas doesn't come from a store. Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. That's right. Our songs try to tell us what Christmas means. Stevie Wonder says, candles burning low, lots of mistletoe, lots of snow and ice everywhere we go. Choir singing carols right outside my door, all these things and more. That's what Christmas means to me, my love. Christmas is the time of the year to be with the ones that you love. That's what uh, one of my favorite songs, The Spirit of Christmas, tells us. Run DMC, of course, the great theologians that they are, tell us that mom cooking chicken and collard greens, rice stuffing and macaroni and cheese, and Santa putting gifts under the Christmas trees. That's what it's all about. G.K. Chesterton, an old pastor who, if you've ever read any Chesterton quotes, he, his However sharp you think your tongue is, his was sharper. However sarcastic you think you are, God blessed him with more of it, okay? So G.K. really had a sharp tongue, and uh, once uh, he said that Christmas is all about the, the sentiment and the symbolism, and he said, if you do not like sentiment and symbolism, you do not like Christmas, go away and celebrate something else. <laughs> I love that from G.K. Chester. And he's like, don't you bring your humbug in here, all right? If you don't like this, you can go somewhere else. So we hear what all these voices say. I, I was thinking about, you know, last night we came to church. Um, being the pastor, I did the 7 and the 11. I don't get an attaboy for that, right? That's just part of the job. Um, so uh, myself and, and Pastor David and Pastor Ben, we were all here for that. And uh, in our home, we read the Christmas story like we always do. We went through some uh, an order of Advent worship together and prayed together. It was wonderful, and I'm sure a lot of you did lots of things that are similar in your house. You have your own traditions, all that. But I got friends this morning who don't know the Lord, and they've gone through Christmas traditions last night, and they've gone through Christmas traditions this morning, and none of it has anything to do with Jesus. They're not doing nativity stuff. They're not talking about all that. It, it really is just what old Stevie said. Candles burning low, lots of mistletoe, snow and ice everywhere we go, choirs, carols, all these things, but not Jesus. And so for them, if we were to ask what Christmas means, his name wouldn't be a part of it. We can hear what all these voices have to say, the culture, the songs, the movies, your friends. But in 1 Timothy 1.15, God settles it once for all. He tells us exactly what Christmas means. He tells us exactly why the first Christmas came to pass. He tells us why Jesus was in the manger. And so that's what we'll do this morning. With just one verse, I want us to see two clear truths. And so 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, here's what Paul writes to his true son in the faith. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Father God, this is the meaning of Christmas, that your Son came into this world to save sinners. And Father, to you who 
uh, all hearts are open to. We pray that you would help us to understand that truth, that you would purify our conscience with your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would work uh, your truth in our hearts and so that it would bear fruit. We cannot do it without you. Uh, apart from you, we do nothing. Uh, Father, so help us to abide in you as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, was probably something that the early church said together uh, on, on a regular basis. Just like almost like a greeting. Like if I just saw you out in the marketplace, just be like, hey, hey Dan, how's it going? Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. You know, it was just like a way that Christians would talk about Jesus' death to one another, a way that they would greet one another, a way that they would worship together. It was a phrase that was often used uh, in the church. And Paul is saying to Timothy here, hey, it's a good phrase. It's a good phrase because it's a true phrase. And I'm the worst one of these sinners that he has saved. The first thing we learn from the passage is that, that Paul is a sinner, that we are sinners. It's, it's not good news that we're learning off the top this morning. It's bad news. If the good news of Christmas joy is ever going to mean anything to us, if it's ever going to make sense to us, if it's ever going to be more than just candles burning low and lots of mistletoe, it must be preceded with the bad news that the Apostle Paul delivers in this verse. Before we can celebrate that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we have to face the reality that we're actually sinners. That we actually have a moral problem with God. I think right off the bat, the true message of Christmas becomes hard for us to swallow and accept if we like to fancy ourselves as being pretty good people. People who are not in need of saving. If you know anything about the guy who wrote this letter of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, then you actually might feel more entitled to your case as a pretty good person. After all, this guy here who is writing this in 1 Timothy 1, who says that he is the foremost of sinners, he's a pretty rough character. Before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was a murderous bully. He was a Pharisee. He was a keeper of the law. And his passion in life was to ensure that this movement of Christ followers in Judea would die with their leader Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 8, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. The first Christian killed for his faith uh, is recorded in the Bible in Acts 6 through 8. And so in Acts 8, right after he dies, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And then uh, Luke writes, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So so he's going house to house. Here's what he's doing. He would go uh, get papers, get certification, uh, get authority from those who are in charge to be able to go around and to arrest people for their faith and to drag them off before courts just like Jesus was, right? And so he would get that uh, authority from the, the rulers and then, and then he would go and he would probably go to a synagogue and he would say, you got any Christ worshipers here? Got any people running around saying that this resurrected Jesus is still alive? You got anybody teaching that you need to repent and put your trust in them? You got anybody preaching that kingdom stuff here? If so, let me know who they are. 
And then Gestapo style, he's rounding them up. He is separating families uh, from, from, from one another, taking dads away from families, moms away from families, putting people in prison, and having people like Stephen killed. I mean, he, he is on the prowl looking to destroy Christianity. Acts 9, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. See, there's his strategy, right? Which it's really interesting because after he gets saved, he always goes to the synagogue first to preach Jesus, right? But here he's going to the synagogue to find the Christ followers and have them killed. So he, he, does what, he goes, gets the authority to be able to go to Damascus and do this. If he finds any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that's his plan. He's got his plan. And then Jesus totally interrupts his plan. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And everything changed for Saul that day. He didn't go to Damascus and try to round Christians up and kill them. He was stricken blind, made his way into the city of Damascus, trying to find this one Christian, Ananias, who prays with him. He regains his sight. He stays with some disciples there who had to be incredibly, I don't know what the word is, weirded out by the fact that this guy who was famous for going around and killing them is suddenly like, hey, can I stay with you? need a place to lay my head. Got a sandwich? You know what I mean? Like, that would shake you up, right? You're like, I know I'm supposed to love him in Christ, but I don't know. This could all be a ploy, right? This could all be him just trying to to get in, do some sort of Trojan horse thing on us. But he stayed with them. He preached the gospel, and he ends up escaping the city in a basket after a plan is made to kill him. And this Jewish man who sought to murder followers of Christ and separate families and put them in prison ends up being known as Paul. Takes on a non-Jewish name after his conversion and spends the rest of his life determined to take the gospel not just to his own people, but to take the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. It's an amazing story of change, an amazing story of transformation. And you might be sitting there this morning going, well, of course that guy needed that to happen. He was going around killing people. He's taking people off into prison. He's murdering people, destroying families. Of course God had to save that guy. But I'm not that guy. I'm not trying to harm anybody. I'm not trying to separate anybody's families. I'm not trying to destroy uh, the Lord's work. I take care of my family. I pay my bills. I'm friendly with my neighbors. I don't do drugs unless the doctor gives them to me. I volunteer in the community. I'm not a perfect person, but generally I am a good person. Surely I don't need the same sort of saving that this murderer needs, this persecutor needs. And so what I want to graciously suggest to you this morning, if indeed this is how you are looking at things, Your whole view of morality is missing the mark. Because your view is, as long as I don't do anything that would make me a bad person, by society standards, then I should be considered good by everybody and by God. 
I, I should be qualified to be in his presence if society says I'm a good person. What this is, is Charles Dickens' morality. And I'm not anti-Christmas Carol. I watched it last night while I was falling asleep. All right? like, I love the Christmas Carol. Okay, it can be Mickey's Christmas Carol, it can be the Jim Carrey uh, cartoon Christmas Carol, you can give me the one from the 1930s, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart, I don't care. Bring them, bring them all. I love all the Christmas Carols. But this is Charles Dickens' morality. The morality in the Christmas Carol is not taking you to heaven. As long as I'm not a greedy crook who skims off the backs of the poor and makes them work on Christmas Eve, well then I'm Okay. I give to charities. I eat turkey with Bob Cratchit. Like, I'm a nice person. And when God judges me at the end of my life, I shouldn't be in chains forever like Jacob Marley. I should be eternally free because I am not an evil person. But the Bible deals with morality differently than Charles Dickens and differently than our society. And if this is the way you're thinking, the Bible deals with morality differently than you are dealing with it. It's framed up with how the Bible begins. It starts with a good God creating the heavens and the earth. And a good God's Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And a good God saying, let there be light. And a good God filling the seas and the earth and the skies. And a good God creating human beings in His own image. And this good God who was perfectly holy created a world that is perfectly holy and people that were righteous to live in that world. And he ruled over the earth and he empowered the first people, Adam and Eve, and he said, you rule on the earth as my representatives. I rule from heaven, but you rule on the earth as my representatives. You, you, have, you, you subdue the earth, you have dominion over it, fill the earth, multiply. And they would be connected to God forever. Living under his rule and reign, serving him on the earth as he had called them and commanded them to do. Enjoying his glory, enjoying this relationship with him. But in Genesis 3, we have a stranger in the garden. We have a serpent who slithers in. The good God gave Adam and Eve thousands of trees to eat from and, and said, it's all for your joy, but don't eat this one tree in the middle of the garden. This tree is not for your joy. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And that serpent comes and says, did he really say that? Will you really die? Doesn't he just want you to not be like him? To not be happy? And they doubted God's word and his trustworthiness, and they ate from that tree, and sin enters into the world. And now, just as God has promised, Adam and Eve are going to die one day. And their perfect relationship with God is broken. They're no longer righteous. The world is no longer perfectly good. They realize they're naked, they're trying to cover up their shame. And Adam and Eve's children were born into this sinful world by sinful parents, born sinners, separated from God, and so it has been with every child born since. So the moral ideal is gone. God is still good in heaven, but the people ruling the world do it according to their own desires, not His direction. Everything is not right in the world. That's what sin does. It breaks things. Charles Spurgeon said, sin is a thief. It will rob your soul of its life. It will rob God of His glory. Sin is a murderer. It stabbed our father Adam. It slew our purity. Sin is a traitor. It rebels against the King of heaven and earth. You know that part, right? This is not 
uh, a news flash to you this morning that I stood up here and I said, the world's broken. You're like, yeah, I know. I'm living in it. We're shrouded in this world in darkness and in brokenness. Whether it's what we saw in the news, what happened to Charlottesville at UVA this year that was horrible, or school shooting down in Texas uh, that we saw, or the pandemic that we've all been living through, or whatever. Fill in the blank of the latest tragedy or the latest heartbreaking thing that you see on the news. We are aware of the brokenness of the world, but we must become equally aware of our own sinfulness, of our own brokenness. We can't just look at the world and say, all that's broken, and not look in the mirror. But the same guy who wrote 1 Timothy 1 in Romans 5 said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the moral fall of human beings in Genesis 3 then results in two tragic realities. All human beings are born sinners, and now all human beings are going to die. And we know that second reality is true, even if we try not to think about it. Deep down, we know this life has an expiration date. The older we get, the more aware we become. The first reality can't be avoided either, though. You were born a sinner, and it becomes clear to us if we do not judge ourselves by society standards. If we reject Charles Dickens' morality and we say, I'm not going to get to heaven simply by showing up at Bob Cratchit's house with a, a, a Christmas dinner, all right? Like, like a nice honey ham is not going to get you across uh, the line of the kingdom. You have transgressed the holy God. That has to be dealt with. And the law of God helps us to understand that. It's His law that shows us how we have transgressed the Lord. He gives us ten moral laws. Four of them have to do with how we interact with Him. Six of them have to do with how we interact with the people around us. So you just got to ask yourself, I mean, you go down the list and say, do I keep the law? Have I ever put anything before God? Surely. Have I ever worshipped anything other than God? Maybe you didn't have a ceremony, maybe you didn't whittle an idol out of wood, but surely you have given your love and affections to things that are not Him, and withheld that love and affection from Him. Have you ever used His name like a curse word, right? He he is the life giver, but then we stub our toe and we use use His name uh, the same way we would use words we would never ever want to say in a room like this, right? Never would want to say in front of our mother or our father or anyone that we respect, right? Yet we take God's name and we use it in the same way. Have we ever failed to rest and focus on Him in the way that He has called us to? Surely. That's just how we deal with Him. I mean, then you look at the rest of society. Have we ever failed? I mean, from the beginning, you have been failing in society, right? Honor your mother and father. Man, I was out on that one by the time I was like three or four. I don't know. Two, one? Day two. I don't know. I can't remember it been a sinner from the start failing my mom and my dad have you ever murdered or committed adultery jesus said if you would just be angry without cause in your heart or lust in your heart you're committing that sin at the thought level and god judges our thoughts and our intentions and so he would see us as a murderer or uh, as being guilty of adultery just by committing those sins in our thought life 
Have we stolen? Have we lied? Have we coveted what others have? Surely, surely, surely. See, we can try to compare ourselves to others and and we can try to judge ourselves by whether or not we're good citizens, but if we throw all that out, throw out all the Charles Dickens morality, and we hold our lives up to God's law, we find we are guilty in every regard that we have broken the law at every point. God's standards take our supposed goodness and break it down and leave us painfully aware of the fact that we are morally hopeless people who are unqualified to stand in the presence of God. We are like Adam and Eve, disregarding His Word to fill our bellies. And if God judged us based on our own ability to be good, we would be in a massive amount of trouble. Because if you break the eternal law of a holy God, that demands eternal punishment. And if he's a good judge, should he not execute that justice on us, whether we pay our bills or volunteer in the community or not? Now at this point, you're probably thinking, well, Merry Christmas to you too, buddy. I mean, good gosh. You've been going for 15 minutes. If you have been broken by this news, if you feel yourself finding utterly helpless in the face of this news, if you find yourself now thinking that Paul is wrong when he calls himself the foremost of sinners because after looking into the law of God, you think, that's actually me. Well, then you're right where you need to be to understand the true meaning of Christmas. I remember the day I became aware I was a sinner. I remember the day. I was at my cousin Chris Reams's house. He had a bunch of little ceramic dogs. They were this big, and I, one of them was a beagle, and I saw it, and I said, I want it, and I pocketed that thing, and I took it. He was like five. I was probably like seven. And I remember like driving home in the car with my dad, feeling that little ceramic dog in my pocket and thinking, I'm living a life of crime now. This is what I've chosen. This is who I am. I, I'm, a, I, I'm a vagabond, you know? <laughs> I'm on the run. Um, and I actually ended up giving that thing back to uh, my cousin, but it wasn't as, like, as uh, honorable as it sounds. I snuck it back in the house the next time I went over and left it there. Um, I would have made a great Catholic. But uh, I was so guilty, you know, just eaten up by it, right? But that was the day I became aware I was a sinner. It, it wasn't probably another seven, eight years till I gave my life to Jesus. If you just became aware that you're a sinner this morning, don't wait seven years. You can wait about seven minutes until I get done. Or, actually, right now, if you know what to do, just stop where you're at and pray right now and ask Him to forgive you. But I'm going to keep going. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. First truth this morning we had to see is that we're sinners, but the second is made so much more glorious when put in perspective with the first truth. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that's glorious because you go, oh wait, that's me. That's me. Before it was like, yeah, he came to save everybody else. But then you look in the law of God, you're like, that's me. He came into the world to save me. Because I'm a sinner. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's what we're rejoicing in this morning. It's the basic message of Christianity. Some people say, oh, the meaning of Christmas is God sending Christ in the world to show us His love. Okay, that's fine, but how did He show us His love? By dying for sinners. See, Jesus came and He lived out the moral ideal. See, how, how could anybody keep the law of God 24-7? 
I'm looking at these Ten Commandments. I, I failed in the first one and I fail every day. How could anybody keep it? What would that even look like? It looks like Jesus. That's exactly what it looks like. For 30 plus years on the earth, the Son of God who was born in Bethlehem lived a perfect life. God the Father is in heaven and God the Son is on earth carrying out His instructions. Not rebelling, not going, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. Why did I have to do this? Joyfully walking the path laid out for Him by His Father. And this is the way that every single man and woman is supposed to live, but we failed. But Jesus came and actually did it. He lived the perfect life we failed to live. He lived a life deserving of eternal reward, not eternal judgment. And yet, in God's plan, Jesus' life does not end with a victory parade, but a crucifixion. I would want a victory parade. I, I, I lost a bunch of weight last year. I went to the doctor back in August. I walked in. I thought they were going to have a plaque on the wall for me. I really did. I thought, I'm going in here, and he's going to be like, look at you. This is amazing. Can we get some other people in here? Can we call the president? Let's have the president come take a look. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really thought he was going to be blown away. And then I got in there, and there was no victory parade. He was like, how are you exercising? Well, I haven't done that yet. Well, it's time. You need to do that. Come see me in a year. See you later. Congratulations. You know, <laughs> and, and I left, right? I was hoping there was going to be this victory parade, but he was like, oh, you're just getting started. God chose for his son's perfect life to not end in a victory parade. God chose for his son's life to end with suffering. Because God chose that his son would go to the cross to save sinners. And the son volunteered for it to die in your place, to took the punishment you should have received for your sins. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Michael's transgressions, Michael's sin. He was crushed for Michael's iniquities, Michael's sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought Michael peace. And with his wounds, Michael's healed. You've got to put yourself in it to see that it was done for you, substitutionary, in your place. So when the angel appears in Luke 2, as we read earlier, and tells them of the Christ who's being born, he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. And it is good news that the child who was born was born to die for us, born to carry our griefs, born to be smitten by God the Father, born to be pierced for our transgressions, born to be crushed for our iniquities. It's good news because His suffering in our place brings us peace, brings us healing. It restores to us the relationship with God that we were created for in the garden. And that is the most precious thing that you could ever have in this world. I thought this morning my son got new shoes, and he's wearing them right now. Cool shoes, SpongeBob shoes, okay? So he's holding his shoes, he's looking at them, and we're like, are they too big, are they too small? Put them on. You know, you're pushing on his toe, you're like, walk, let's see it, you know? And, and everybody's been there, right, when your kid gets new shoes. So he's putting them on, and, and I thought, I wonder how long I'll be able to wear them. Because I have this thing in me, and I see it in my kids too, where as soon as I start to enjoy something, I start thinking about when it's going to go away. It's terrible. And, and, and so I'm looking at shoes and going, when are they going to outgrow them? How long is he going to get out of these? 
those shoes are cool, but are they precious? No, they're going to be gone in a year and a half. I'm not going to wear anymore. I have to get new shoes. That's the way it goes. This relationship God has created you for fits perfectly and lasts forever. It's never going to end. If you start a relationship with Jesus today, you don't have to go, gosh, this is so great. I wonder when it's all going to be over. It's never going to be over. He's going to take you from life to life, and you're going to be with him forever. It's good news. When we get done with Christmas, we're moving to Easter. Next week, we got a New Year's sermon, and then on January the 8th, we're right back in Luke. We're going to finish it up, God willing, in January, and we'll be Luke 24. He is not here. He is risen. And I love that we're going from Advent to Easter because the message of Christmas is connected to the message of Easter forever. He was born to die, but He died to resurrect. And in resurrecting, He has conquered sin and death, and He offers you the gift of that forever, perfect fit, eternal life. Repent and put your trust in Him to save your soul. And if you do, you will experience that which He came to give you, salvation. Forgiveness. Peace. I want to leave you with this this morning. It's not going to sound like a very preacher thing to say, but it's important. Christmas is true, and its meaning is true, but it's not for everybody. Why why would you say something like that? Well, James 4, verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so if your heart is too proud to admit your sin, to admit your brokenness, to admit that you're looking into the law of God and you fall way short, if you're too proud to admit that you need saving, you're going to find Christmas to be very, very difficult to accept. And that's because pride is not a hurdle to receiving the grace of God. It is a thick titanium wall. Understand that. Pride is an enemy to faith, to belief, to salvation. The Bible tells us not once, but on more than one occasion, God opposes or resists the proud. And you say, well, why is that? Because the proud will always look at him and say, I don't need you and I don't want you. The proud will never confess their own inability to hold up their end of the moral ideal. They'll always say, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. And Christ did not come for those who say they're good enough. He came for those who say, I'm sick. Mark 2.17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. People who cannot admit they are sick will never go to their doctor and get the remedy. And people who cannot admit that they are sinners will never go to the Savior for salvation. My favorite Christmas movie ever, by far, gotta watch it every year, is Home Alone. What happens in that movie? Well, Kevin gets in trouble for mouthing off to his mom, saying things my kids would never dare to say to Catherine Howard. My gosh. You wouldn't see him again. What happened to Beckett? I don't know. So in the movie, she says, you stay upstairs. I don't want to see you for the rest of the night. He says, I don't want to see you again for the rest of my whole life, and I don't want to see anybody else either. My favorite line is when he says, when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. 
to which Everett pointed out this year when we were watching, he said, how do you get married and live alone? I said, son, it happens. It happens. This movie is about this kid being so proud. I don't need anybody. Then he gets alone. And, you know, at first it's like, eh, popcorn, and I'm, you know, I'm chugging chocolate syrup, and I'm buying toothbrushes and riding the sleigh down the stairs. And then, you know, a couple of burglars try to run you over in broad daylight and threaten you. And suddenly, where's mom? That pride gets melted down into humility real fast. And that is the plot of so many Christmas movies. In some form or fashion, it's about prideful people having their hearts melted and they're humbled by the truth, right? That's what happens to the Grinch, and that's what happens to Scrooge, and that's what happens to James Caan in Elf. Why does the world keep pumping out this message? Because they know that this is what Christmas is about. They know that deep down, Christmas is about the pride of the heart being melted down and humility being left. The problem is, is they miss the centerpiece. They get all the sides, they get all the fixings, they forget the ham. The jewel. The main thing when it comes to Christmas. It's not just that you would be humbled. It's that you would be humbled to an awareness of your sin and then repent and put your trust in Jesus for salvation and then spend your days worshiping and obeying Him because you love Him and because His Spirit dwells in your heart and has written His laws on your heart. The lights and the songs and the traditions, it all falls short if Jesus coming to save sinners is not in the middle of it. The old song says, fall on your knees. Instead of falling on your knees, I'll say, it, it wouldn't sound as good singing it, but I'll, I'll say, tear down the wall of pride. Tear down the wall of pride. And when you tear that down and you get honest with God about your sin, you're in a position to repent, to begin a life of praise, a life of confessing sin, a life of trusting in Christ, a life of being saved by Jesus and held in his hand. He came into the world for this purpose. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that your son is a savior. And um, Lord, I needed him. I needed him. I needed him before I put that beagle in my pocket. I needed him from the second I came into this world, as is everybody that's here. We have no hope without your son. There is no hope of life without your son. We can run around saying the buzzwords of Christmas, buzzwords like joy and peace, but there is no real joy and peace without your son. January 1st, the world's going to pack all this up, Lord. They're going to pack up the tinsel and the, uh, the wreaths and the decorations and the red and the green and the blue and the silver and all of that. But we're not packing it up. We'll keep beholding him. We'll keep coming to him and adoring him. We will keep listening to the song that the angels sing. We will not ignore him. Because without him we would just be lost. We would go to hell, and we would live in eternal darkness. But with them we have light, we have peace, we have hope. And we look to the horizon, knowing that he will come again. We love you, Lord, and we love you for the great gift of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Ben's going to